that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. Those were the words of the inspired apostle Paul in Ephesians 5, 27. As he was describing the character, the nature, that which should in fact be the truth always with respect to the church of our Lord. In that passage, he made note carefully about the fact that it was furnished, established, and set forth without either spot or blemish. There were no marks of toleration in the sense of contamination. There were no tarnishes, no mars, no blemishes. Our Savior established the church in absolute purity, in pristine justification and majesty, and set it forth that it should continue and remain in exactly that way. But as we all know, human hands have touched the church in ways of changing, adding, subtracting, put, setting forth things that are not exactly as the Lord set it forth in the days of the long ago. Two chapters earlier, we read in Ephesians 3.21, another statement in description of exactly what the church should ever strive to always be. Unto Him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages. World without end. Amen. The church should be the centerpiece of bringing glory and honor unto God through the Christ, ever seeking to do exactly that which Christ has set forth, always striving to only do things that we have a thus saith the Lord, in fact, to authorize. I begin the lesson with passages like those because as we read the epistle of Ephesians, we notice in six chapters that Paul, in fact, wrote to the churches in that area, specifically that church at Ephesus, and reminded them of the very thoughts that we have mentioned so far this evening. They needed to know that Christ set forth the church without spots and blemishes. Thus, when those things occur, it's because mankind has introduced it, not because God did, not because Christ did. That brings us to the title of the lesson tonight, Innovations in the Church. As we shall see shortly, there are some interesting matters that you and I face this modern day and time. Some introductory remarks directing us along that line might well be these. Those verses that we just noted pointed out to us the truth that the church should be just as pure spiritually as Christ maintained His physical body's purity. That reminds all of us that we are not dealing with a matter that's a social club. We aren't dealing with something that's like matters that men have introduced and that they govern and that they set the bylaws and the matters to. The God of heaven has given all the authority with respect to the church to its head, which is of course is the Christ. Jesus is the head of the church, Colossians 1.18. And so we have in the New Testament all the features all of the matters, all of the guidelines, and all of the doctrines that must be followed by the church, and there are no more. To say all of that does say that in recent years there has come to be a new set of arrangements. I shall use the word innovations to describe them. That word innovation simply means the introduction of something new. Men, it seems, always clamor for something new, don't we? We notice in commercials, new and improved is the slogan to describe it. Whether it be new cereal, new soap, new car, it doesn't matter as long as it's new and improved. In so many ways, that has come to be descriptive of often 
what people like in their worship services as well and what they want their church to do. They want it to be new and improved. In other words, they wish some innovations to be made known and they wish some innovations to be set forth. That word innovations is a word that perhaps you and I use not terribly often, but nonetheless it's a word that is terribly descriptive of some of the matters facing the modern church. I suppose it would be fair to say that it's not only the modern church, but yea, perhaps even since the day of Pentecost, there have been the temptation to consider innovations and the issues that surround them. It is for that reason tonight I would ask each of us to at least for the next few moments give some thought to the matter of innovations in the church. What should be our approach to it? Should we in fact ignore them? Should we welcome them? Should we compliment them? Should we in fact pat those on the back who do in fact introduce them and encourage them as something that's noteworthy and good? Or should we be aware that there is a potential problem here? That there is a matter that in fact should throw up red flags to our consideration so that we might appreciate the dangers that may lurk within it. As we study that matter tonight, the innovations in the church, we shall do so with an observational list of some things that perhaps should capture our attention and then turn our matters to what does the Bible have to say about them. As we begin, here is a listing of some innovations. This is by no means exhaustive. It is by no means a list that would be thorough and complete, but it is a list in which there are some matters that you and I should at least take note of. The existence of baby dedication services in the church. That is to say, a particular and special ceremony in which parents will bring their little ones, their little boys and girls, and the preacher or some other official individual will not only pray over them, but will in fact sanctify the parents so that they will appreciate a covenant that they may rear that child in a way that would in fact be more near and more close to what the God of heaven would have them do. <clears throat> Baby dedication services. Perhaps another one. The usage and the employment of the clapping of hands in the worship of the church with or without singing. You and I know that there are instances in which we not only see that on television, but yea, there are other matters in which individuals might substitute that for an aspect in singing or use it to accompany the singing. What about the clapping of hands? Would that be an innovation? Consider a third one. <clears throat> As it relates to the music of the church... It has also become not that uncommon to give thought to a special arrangement in which there's a praise team. That is, an especially selected group of people, perhaps who are known for their capability in singing, quite frankly. Maybe there's a soprano, a bass, a tenor, and an alto. Maybe there's additional ones, but these perhaps sit to themselves, and they perhaps sing while the rest of the congregation doesn't. Or they sing with microphones so that they are especially heard, whether others are heard or not. That, of course, goes rather close along the line of choruses and choirs. There is this special music then, isn't there? This potential innovation, what might you and I say about that? If we were to go a step further, we might ask, 
the employment of a mechanical instrument of music. There are some who are thus rather quick to argue and are rather quick to thus say, if I may clap, what is the difference between clapping and plucking a, gu a guitar or beating a drum or playing a xylophone or perhaps some other instrument of music? As you can well appreciate, many of these thoughts are somewhat entangled in light of their approach, but the thought is again a good one. What about these issues that have not traditionally been employed, but thus we may view them as an innovation, what might we say about them? Do they have a place in the worship of the church, or are we to recognize that they are not authorized? Let's list some additional ones. What about the place of drama in worship? It is, again, not that uncommon for a congregation to have a skit, a puppet show, a particular set of performances in which actors doing one thing or another set forth the biblical narrative rather than, let's say, some other thing such as preaching or praying or reading the Bible. There is a skit, a performance. Is that an acceptable part of worship? You and I need to understand that these are good questions and that there are those around us who are asking these questions and maybe you and I have already faced them in one way or another. Beyond that, what about the place that women have in the worship of the church or in the other activities in terms of the service of the church? Should there be a change? Has the time come when the cultural matters, perhaps in days gone by with the feminist era that we now enjoy since 1974 onward, are we wrong to forbid a woman as a preacher? Would it be improper to allow her to lead singing? There are those who have already decided that it would be improper to do so, and they have welcomed women to do those things. What's more, what about the actual having of Bible classes? What about the having of a room like the one behind me? What you and I would call a fellowship place. Would that be an innovation? And if so, would it be improper? All of these are exceedingly pointed and noble questions, and they are fair to ask, and they certainly deserve an answer. Perhaps as you quickly note the completion, the actual existence of a building or something attached to it, perhaps one of the last thoughts on that slide is one that I thought entirely worthy to comment I realize that there are places in the world in which many of these things are done in a building that has the word Church of Christ on it. But may I submit to you that there are some of these things taking place in buildings not that far distant from right here. I know for a fact in Nashville, Tennessee, much of that is done. I have already experienced it. And I feel sure that in the, within the confines of Putnam County there are congregations that are at least wrestling with these, if not, have already made the decision that one would be right in making use of these innovations. All of that helps us see then that the question is a good one. The very last point on that slide is one that deserves also a moment of consideration. It is, of course, important to make a distinction between that which is an innovation and that which is tradition. After all, you and I have a respected tradition that we look to, we appreciate. It's the way that perhaps the church was, the one in which you and I were raised. It's the way we've become comfortable. It's the way we expect it. 
But just because another church does something slightly different, as long as it still meets the qualifications and the truth set forth in the Word of God, there would be nothing improper about it. So tonight, we are not really discussing anything quite like that. We're asking, what about something that genuinely is new in the sense that it might well be described as this innovation? It is with that in mind, let's take a look at some of those things that we raise, and admittedly, we'll be a bit brief about it. But as we do so, might we begin in the following way? I would submit that a fair amount of our discussion might well hinge on that word innovation. We defined that earlier this evening, did we not? As the introduction of something new. The introduction of something new. There at the top, you'll notice that that word innovation is usually employed in a way to refer to those practices that are not authorized in the Bible. And it is, by the way, that way in which I will seek to use that word this evening. But I would ask each of us to remember that just because something is new, that just means it might well not be what you and I would appreciate by tradition, but that it might still be okay by, with, with respect to the Word of God. We are talking literally about those innovations in as much as they are not authorized in the Bible. And for that reason, that leads me to, to draw your attention to that text that was read in our hearing earlier this evening. As Lucas read for us in Colossians 3 verse 17, it said, very carefully and rather powerfully, about the nature of the authority vested in the Christ and in His Word. Colossians 3 beginning in verse 16, it reads, speaking about the nature of Christ and the greatness of all that comes by virtue of His will. The text in the, on that particular occasion, as Paul addressed the church in Colossae, it was a description in which that church was already needing to be reminded that Christ was the centerpiece of all that was to be their worship, all that was to be their Christian life, and all that was to be the very thing that they were to live. They were not to let Christ be just a side matter. He was not to be, to be plan B, if you please. He was to be plan A of their life. It is for that reason in those two verses, we notice interestingly of a special import about the text of verse 17. When Paul wrote to that church, he asked them to remember that they do nothing without the authority of Christ, but that He always be the guide and that He be the thing to which they turned. It is for that reason that He is the final authority. Christ, the very Son of God, and the Word that He delivered. I would ask you to notice that faith is, of course, a necessary matter along that line. By faith, we, of course, mean this. Faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. Hebrews 11, verse 1. For without faith it is impossible to please Him. For he that cometh to God must believe that He is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him, Hebrews eleven six. For those reasons, we notice tonight that faith then is one that looks to the revelation of God and accepts it for what it is, not seeking to subtract from it or add to it, but takes it as the infallible will of God, that which has no mistake or error in it, and tries to build a life solely and squarely upon that. What is not of faith, of course, is sin, Romans 14, 23. 
And so tonight, when we ask questions about these practices that we've listed, our question will be, does faith allow it? Is it based upon a revelation in faith, or must its origin, its origin become elsewhere? Jesus himself made this statement in Mark, the 11th chapter. There was an occasion in which he was asked a question. By that time, he had already come to the point where many were looking upon him and questioning, where is he getting the authority to do this? He has gone into the temple, turned over the tables, drove out the animals. In fact, on that occasion, they straightforwardly asked him, where did you get the authority to do this? From whence hath thou this authority? Jesus answered, I also will ask you one question. And if you shall answer, I also will answer you. Mark eleven twenty eight. The question the Lord asked was, The baptism of John, was it from heaven or of men? I would submit that we have the ultimate answer on that occasion. Everything done in the nature of religion has but one of two possible sources just as the baptism of John did. It's either from heaven or it's of men. There is no third choice. As the Pharisees and others wrestled with a way to answer, the Lord put them on the horns of a dilemma. And we each remember, I'm sure, that they ultimately decided we cannot tell. They knew, you see, that if they answered it was from heaven, then Jesus would say, then why did you not follow it? Why did you not accept John's baptism if it was from heaven? But they also recognized that they were unwilling to answer it was of men because they knew the people respected John as a prophet. And thus, if they had answered that he was simply of a man, the people would have had no interest in anything they furthermore had to say. Thus, when they told the Lord, We cannot tell, Jesus said, Neither tell I you by what authority I do these things. What Jesus had done was evidence enough they should have recognized it by fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy that the authority was from God. On that occasion, the Lord stumped them by simply noting that the matter of authority was critical. It was vital. It was significant. And it still remains that way today. For those reasons, perhaps it's time to ask about some of these matters that we have introduced earlier. As we consider baby dedication ceremonies, might we give some thought to what is involved in these? Is there anything separate and distinct from what God would command of any Christian parent in any sense or way? Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Proverbs 22, 6. And ye fathers, provoke not your children to anger, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Ephesians 6, 4. Are those any less powerful if one does not have a baby dedication ceremony? Are those any less telling and any less compelling? I would submit that where is the authority for having a baby dedication ceremony? And by the same token, where is the authority for baptizing a baby? For after all, it's on that same occasion that in many instances that too is performed. We understand that the purpose of baptism is for the remission of sins. But a baby doesn't have any sins. A baby is born in purity. It's born clean. It hasn't violated its conscience in any way. It hasn't done good nor bad. As we read exactly in Romans 9 verses 10 to 15, 
Paul expressly said that while Jacob and Esau were in the womb of Rebekah, they had done neither good nor bad. And that king of Tyre was told in Ezekiel 28, 15, Thou wast perfect in all thy ways from the day thou wast created until iniquity was found in thine heart. The king of Tyre wasn't born in sin. He was born a pure, clean, sinless baby. And he became a sinner when he had reached the point of making that decision to violate the law and will of God. Isn't it still a remarkable thing to remember that in Matthew the 18th chapter, Jesus said, Suffer the little children to come unto me and forbid them not, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. That text of Matthew 19, 14 harmonizes beautifully with the one which earlier in which Jesus set a little child amongst them and said, Except ye be converted and become as this little child, ye cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. May we thus be quick to say that if that little child was a sinner, Jesus said, Heaven is full of sinners. We know that mustn't be right. It can't be right. For we read in the Revelation that there is no defilement in heaven, Revelation 21, 27. For those reasons, we know that little baby is pure. That little baby doesn't have any sin. Thus, where is there an authorization from a dedication ceremony to where one sanctifies and consecrates that baby to the fact it's already safe and pure? May we say that those who have moved into that arena of an innovation in terms of a baby dedication ceremony should seriously rethink the purpose for such and what it may well say about the nature of the child and the obligations the parent already has. But maybe another one. What about that matter of the clapping of hands in worship? We well remember the New Testament does authorize music in worship, but the God of heaven has explicitly said what the music is. It is vocal music singing. In Ephesians 5, 29, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. God said, music in worship is that which I demand, but He said it must be singing. He gave no authorization to play anything except the human heart. It has often been noted that the Greek word used in that text of Ephesians 5, 19 does have a partial significance of twanging or playing something. But it is always invariably the case that the instrument must be specified with it. And there God specified it through Paul. He said, singing and making melody in the heart. The instrument you and I play in worship is the heart. And thus any other instrument, no matter what it is, is not authorized by the God of heaven. We aren't authorized for a guitar, a banjo, a drum, a triangle, a xylophone, nor are we authorized to hum. For you see, that too is a violation of the text of Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your heart to the Lord. We're reminded there, aren't we, that that music of which the Lord spoke, it is capable of teaching and admonishing. We notice a musical instrument can't teach. Paul stated in 1 Corinthians 14, 7 that a musical instrument is a lifeless, dead thing. Thus, you and I are commanded to sing. That means hand clapping is not authorized. And if we venture into that, that's an innovation God does not approve of. 
in fact, the clapping of hands is the same thing as playing a guitar. It is the same as playing some other musical instrument. It is the production of sound by a rhythmic means other than the human voice. For that reason, we notice that one must be exceedingly cautious and careful, even in the arena and area in which we live. It is a rather easy thing, isn't it? During the summertime, when the vacation Bible schools take place, we encourage our youth in terms of their excitement. We're happy that they're there. We encourage them to learn their Bible stories. We encourage them with songs. It's awfully easy if we aren't careful to accompany those songs during the course of the worship with a clapping of hands. If we do, we're, we're, in, we're in error. We should appreciate that is no different than letting them play a guitar, letting them play a triangle, letting them play a drum. Thus, as we give thought to the Lord's requirement that all things be done decently and in order, that has a restriction in 1 Corinthians 14.40 about the very matter of which we speak tonight. Innovations in the church, they can be an issue, can't they? As you give thought about the matter of that, what about the praise teams we mentioned earlier? The verses that we've already read, he said, Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, we as a congregation are commanded by God to involve ourselves in singing. Singing is not just for a selected few. It's not just for those who think that they can sing better than others. It's not for some whose voice seems to be richer, smoother, purer, stronger. God nowhere in the Bible said singing is for those that can sing well. I know I'm thankful for that. I can't sing that well, but I enjoy trying. And God wants all of us to sing, and He wants us to do so with the Spirit and with the understanding, 1 Corinthians 14, verse 15. Thus, when we sing, it should be out of the depths of our heart, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks unto God, Hebrews 13, 15. And as we sing, it should truly be an anthem of praise, a doxology of grandeur and greatness to the God of heaven. Hasn't He been so good to us? He sent His Son to die for us. Isn't that worth singing about? As we think about then the nature of how care must be used, that does bring us also to those mechanical instruments. I'd ask you to notice in light of them, in 2 John verses 9 and 10, any person who goes beyond the doctrine of Christ does not have God. Those were the words of the Apostle John, and yet we've just noted this book gives no authorization for a mechanical instrument, and thus to use one must require that we go beyond this book. And yet, for those, it says they do not have God. That should be a sobering thought for each of us, and yea, for any individual. The Word of God is pure, Proverbs 30, verse 5, and is complete, 2 Timothy 3, verse 16. It has within it all the means by which you and I can find godliness and life, 2 Peter 1, 3. You'll notice furthermore, what about drama? It has become no small matter of interest to turn the worship services, at least in some instances, into something that is more entertaining. After all, this day and time, we've got cell phones, internet, television, radio, iPads, 
iPods, and that's only a brief list. We have at our disposal things almost on the whim and fancy anytime we want it. Shouldn't we at least drum up the worship a little bit, some would say? Should we not at least raise the beat a little bit? After all, isn't it a bit old-fashioned to just preach and sing and take the Lord's Supper and pray and give as we've been prospered? Can't we just add a little bit to spice it up? In Isaiah chapter 6, it's interesting that on that occasion, God had something to say about that. You might recall that Isaiah on that occasion was commissioned as a prophet of God. God took a coal of fire, touched it to his mouth and said, You preach my word. You might recall that Isaiah said, Here am I, Lord, send me. He was overwhelmed with the need to proclaim the goodness of the gospel. He said, God, I'm ready. Send me. But then in the verses that follow, we're often in a position to overlook the next thing he said. Isaiah began to be concerned. What if they won't listen? What if they're uninterested? What if they won't pay attention to what I say? God said, Isaiah, some of them are not going to listen. Some of them are not going to hear. Some of them will be interested in something else. You preach my word. Don't you change it. Don't you add to it. Don't you spice it up to make it what they want. You preach my word. You preach it in truth. You don't compromise it. Isaiah said, Hear my Lord, send me. He was ready to preach the unsearchable riches of the truth of God. And today, nothing in terms of that has changed. You and I notice that many have an interest in spicing up that which the church does or claims to do. Our interest is again the same, to simply preach the unsearchable riches of Christ, Ephesians 3.8, and to preach the truth in love, Ephesians 4.15, and to say those matters that the God of heaven has revealed. Beyond that, we notice these matters concerning drama. If children wish to watch a puppet show at some point outside the services, there's nothing wrong with that. But to turn that and make that a part of the worship, and to turn the worship into something that incorporates it, where is the authority for it? What authority do we have to incorporate it? We have no mention of puppet shows in the New Testament. We have no mention of drama performances in the New Testament. Are you and I not in error if we allow that to then be a part of worship? The answer is again yes, because all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. And is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God might be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. 2 Timothy 3, beginning in verse 16. As you'll notice at the bottom, our desire to ever keep the worship services, and in fact all that the church does, in the way of decency and in order, is a strong guide to all the aspects of that which we do and that which we say, and to the way that those things are in fact done. What about some of those other things we noted? There are some who consider the church of Christ to have an exceedingly black eye when it comes to the church's viewpoint toward the work of women. After all, they'd say, that church don't allow a woman to preach, and that church doesn't allow a woman to lead singing, and that church doesn't allow a woman to lead prayer. They're backward, they're ancient, they're against women. 
After all, there are some who would be quick to allege, and there have been many through the years, that we are of exactly that way. We are not being anything other than a faithful attempt to interpret what God through Paul has said. In the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians 14, as well as 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul said, But I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. Can a woman sing? Absolutely, she is commanded to do it. Can she, in fact, lift her voice in encouragement to a fellow Christian who is, in fact, wayward? Can she urge them to do better? Can she be an example to her children? Can she be an encouragement to her husband? Absolutely. But there is a restriction to the way in which God has, by His Word, allowed things to be done with His authority and His approval. You'll notice in passages like these, may she teach a child in the course of a Bible class. We find no New Testament description in which that is a matter of error. She mustn't teach over a man. She can teach a small child as long as it's not over a man, as long as it is not an affront in some other way to what the New Testament has affirmed. We find instances in which women in the New Testament are commanded to be teachers of other women. They're commanded to, in fact, teach their children, Titus 2.4. Thus, we are not interested in forbidding them to do anything that God wishes and has commanded. You might also observe then that for those who would have an innovation in which a woman is placed in a position to preach or to do some other public activity in that way, that kind of innovation is not supported by the Word of God. Perhaps that next one we noted, having the existence of a building to meet in. We find in the New Testament that God gave those early Christians the capability of meeting in various places. Beside a river in Acts 16, in a person's home in the book of Philemon, beneath the character of a tree in places in the book of Acts. We find that it would be entirely right to meet in any and all of those places. May one in addition meet in a building, May one meet on a boat, in a car, on a train, on a ship. The church may meet where brethren come together. We find they met in an upper room on one occasion. Could you and I have a designated room like this one? It would certainly seem to be the case. And we, in fact, rest upon the character of the good utility of a structure like this one to carry out the work of God, be it in evangelism, be it in benevolence, or be it even in edification. You might also notice as we come near the close of that list the character and interest that associates to these innovations that we've discussed. As you and I look with love upon the decisions that some have made in the church, we cannot help but be brokenhearted because innovations that go against that which God has delivered are not just the introduction of something new, it's the introduction of something wrong. And that, of course, should not bring an element of happiness to any person. Innovations in the church are not good. We should always strive to have a thus saith the Lord for what we do, be it in worship or be it in the way that the work of the church is carried out. And thus, we look to our elders and we ourselves look to the Word of God as well as they to always strive to be like those noble Bereans in Acts 17.11. These were more noble than those in Thessalonica. 
in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the Scriptures daily, whether those things were so. Are the things that we do so? Notice they found the answer by looking into this book. Whether those things were so. Today, might we ask, don't just accept what I say, but let us all be diligent students of the Word of God to check with thoroughness and with integrity and the diligence to ensure that the things that we do, the things that we say, the things that we uphold are always in light of the revelation of the goodness and greatness of God. As we conclude our lesson this evening, perhaps in this summary statement, we notice that we have carefully defined this matter of innovations to be those things which the Bible has not authorized. And if an innovation is used in that sense, we know for sure that such a thing is a wrong matter. God hasn't authorized or approved it. And as we noted in Colossians 3.17, Whatsoever ye do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks unto God and the Father by Him. May you and I strive here at Pippin to do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Tonight, my friend, are you a Christian? Are you a faithful member of the body of Christ? If you have never begun the faithful walk with Him, why not tonight? The baptismal waters behind me are ready. We could assist you as you make a public statement of your confession that follows, of course, your belief and your repentance. If we could assist you in that way tonight, we'd be honored to do so. If you have become a child of God, but you have not lived faithfully, you have allowed other matters to infiltrate your life, you've allowed Satan to be the director of the things that you do and say. Quickly give him the exit to your life and put Jesus back on the throne of your life. If tonight we could assist you in doing that by praying for your forgiveness as you too pray unto God, we do remember that the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Tonight, if we could be of assistance to you, we would ask that you make this great decision even now while together we stand and while we sing.